And turning finally to our sermon text, which is the book of Acts once again, the book of Acts 17 this morning, chapter 17, beginning at verse number 1. So here we are in the midst of the second missionary journey, as we call it, chapter 17, picking up at verse number 1. Paul has made his way to Macedonia, and he made his way, his way there uh, to uh, Philippi, but yet uh, he was sent out of Philippi. His ministry was greatly blessed, but at the same time, greatly persecuted, and so we pick up where uh, we left off. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, Thessaloniki today in Greece. Where, they, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaimed you, is the Christ, is the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, meaning a lot of them. Verse 5, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing, meaning a lot of them as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. And to all these words, God's people say, Amen. Amen. Well, you see here the apostle and Silas, his assistant, and Timothy, his young assistant, whom he picked up, we saw just a bit ago. They pass from Philippi on what was uh, this uh, very important Roman road, the Via Ignatia, the, the Via Ignatia, we might say, the, the Via Ignatia. And they travel to Amphipolis, which is 33 miles of travel. 
And then from there to Apollonia, another 27 miles. And then to Thessalonica, 35 miles. So roughly you know, 90 to 100 miles, give or take. Now remember that we read verses like this, and it shows us the leading of the Holy Spirit. We saw back in chapter 13 where Paul and Barnabas were sent by the church in Antioch to go to the Gentiles, that the very next thing in that chapter 13 that we read was that they were also sent by the Holy Spirit. And so all these journeys that we've seen from this place to that place have been the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. Now in chapter 16, we saw that in a very powerful way in chapter 16, if you turn back there uh, to verse 6 through 10, just you want to glance there, you can. Uh, We saw it in a powerful way because there the Holy Spirit forbade them from going to certain regions and cities. Paul and Silas wanted to go to certain parts to preach the gospel, but the Holy Spirit said no. And so they traveled, and then they wanted to turn another way. The Holy Spirit said no. Why? To get them to Macedonia, to get them to Europe, to get them to Philippi, and here to get them to Thessalonica and to Berea. And so we saw in chapter 16, in a very powerful way, the power and the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit of God, as we just confess in the Athanasian Creed, the Holy Spirit is God. And he determines where the apostle goes, and he determines to whom the apostle goes, and he determines whom will hear with open ears and hearts and be saved. We saw in chapter 16 last Sunday, in a very, again, powerful way, that it was the Holy Spirit who opened Lydia's heart to believe the things that Paul was preaching. And so again, why why did Lydia's heart need to be opened? From last Sunday, why did Lydia's heart need to be opened by the Holy Spirit? Because like every sinner, she was dead in her sins. Yes, the Lord was leading her and she was a God-fearer and she was praying and she she was searching out the God of the Israelites. But like every sinner, her heart was a heart of stone. And only the Lord can give us open hearts and give us hearts of flesh. Only the Lord can open up our blocked up ears and open up our blinded eyes and loosen our tongues to praise his name. The Spirit of God was shown in chapter 16 to be powerful and mighty, the sovereign Lord, the sovereign God. So does that mean? Did that mean for the apostle? Does that mean for us? That if God is this sovereign, that we should just let go and let God? If God is sovereign to save, if God is sovereign to send us and to send missionaries to the world where he wants, when he wants, to whom he wants, should we just let go and let God? That wasn't very enthusiastic. I heard two brothers in the front. Brothers and sisters, come on now. Come on now. I know we came a little bit late this morning at summer schedules. Everybody's like, yeah, we're, we're getting out early today. Should we just let go and let God? No. No. That's what chapter 16 is for. It help, or 17 is for. It helps us to, to, to get a balanced view that, yes, the Spirit of God is utterly sovereign. At the same time, notice chapter 17, the focus I want to see here is that the Spirit also uses the means of the apostles' words, the means of preaching, the means of the word to say, is God utterly sovereign to save whom he will? Absolutely, 100% amen to that. 
On the other hand, we must preach, we must pray, we must labor, we must evangelize, we must share the gospel. Both are true. Both are 100% true. So notice here, first of all, the apostles preaching, the source of it in verse uh, Second, second part of verse 1 and just verse 2 there, quickly. Notice the source of his preaching. I want you to see again, the summary here is that the Spirit of God is shown to us to be sovereign. Chapter seventeen, chapter uh, 16, chapter 17, we see the Spirit's use of the means, the method of the words of the apostle in preaching. We read there, as they made their way to Thessalonica, that there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in along with Silas and Timothy, as was his custom. We've seen this a couple times before. As was his custom. To go to the Jews first, because they had the Old Testament, they read it every single Sabbath day, Paul as a trained rabbi would be enabled to preach the word before them. He went to those who knew God, and the, uh, the Greeks on the outside of the synagogue who were listening, who were the God-fearers, some of them had even converted and been circumcised. He went to those who knew of the Lord of Israel first. And for three Sabbaths, notice, up to this point, it's been like one Saturday service and he's kicked out. Three consecutive Sabbath days. As was his custom. And he reasoned with them. Notice the source of his preaching. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. From the scriptures. What does that mean? When the Bible says, or when we just want to use that that lingo of the Bible, we sometimes call it Christianese. You know, we use our Christianese, our little code words. What does it mean to speak of the scriptures? What does that word actually mean? The scriptures. God's words, right? Literally, it just means sacred writings. Sacred writings. These are the words of God. And so the scriptures are the sacred writings. Well, which ones? Which ones? The Old Testament, isn't it? The Old Testament. First of all, he's in a synagogue. They read the Old Testament. Secondly, the New, the New Testament as a, as a whole group of writings wasn't collected yet and wasn't, hasn't even been written yet. Paul is here in Thessalonica for three straight Sabbath days. Later on, he writes his first letter to the Thessalonians and the second letter to the Thessalonians. He wrote a letter to the Philippians. We saw uh, last Sunday he was in Philippi. He wrote them a letter too. The, the New Testament took some time to be written uh, and to be gathered. So he's reasoning from the Old Testament. We also know that because if you turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3, notice how Paul speaks there. 2 Timothy chapter number 3. So Timothy is here with him uh, in Thessalonica, listening to him reason from the sacred writings, the scriptures. And Paul writes to Timothy later on, his last letter, 2 Timothy in chapter 3. Notice verse 15. He says this to Timothy. Uh, from how from childhood you, Timothy, have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the scriptures. Remember, Timothy's mother was which ethnic group? No, not his mom. Jew. His dad was what? A Greek. So as uh, one who's raised by his mother, and we learn elsewhere from his grandmother, Lois, they taught him the scriptures from his infancy. See that there. They are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He was taught the Old Testament. And then he goes on to say, all scripture, verse 16, that famous verse, all scripture is breathed out by God. We sometimes use that language of inspired and profitable and 
so forth. So he's reasoning with them from the scriptures, from the Old Testament. That's the source of his preaching. What about for us? What's the source of our preaching, my, my preaching, and our, all of our evangelizing? What's the source? Well, for, again, for Paul, as he spoke to Jews, it was the Old Testament. We'll see next Sunday, Lord willing, uh, in chapter 17, well, while he's in Athens, he's not speaking to Jews, he doesn't reference the Old Testament, at least explicitly. He reasons with them a little bit differently, but we'll come to that. What about for us, when we speak with unbelievers today? What's the source of our evangelism? What was that? It, I would hope it would be the same. Yeah, I hope it would be the same. I say that because a lot of times we think, well, evangelism is, is you know, or witnessing or, or giving my testimony. It's all about my story. And we talk about how bad we were, we came to Jesus, and now how good we are in kind of simplistic ways, right? Now, we need to explain to people, and I would hope they would see our life, that we are changed people, and that that's a part of it, but... Our evangelism, the source of our evangelism, our telling the gospel, is God's story, not ours. God's story, not ours. Both the Old and New Testaments. How it fulfills the needs of the world, a need of redemption from sin. And so the word of God is the inspired word of the Holy Spirit. And so as we seek to speak that word and we speak to share that word and spread that word, we need to meditate on the word, brothers and sisters. Here's Paul reasoning from the scriptures. We need to meditate on the word, to think about it often, to study it, to read it, to memorize parts of it, to meditate on the word. Secondly, we need to marinate, if I can put it that way, in prayer. Meditate on the word, marinate in prayer so that we might minister to all. Meditate on the words, marinate in prayer, minister to all. To all. That's the source, then, of his preaching, is, are, are the scriptures. So again, chapter 16, the Holy Spirit in his power leads Paul and Barnabas, or Paul, Silas, and Timothy, where he wants, how he wants, when he wants, to whom he wants. Chapter 17, the focus is upon the words that Paul uses, which the Holy Spirit uses to bring salvation. Secondly, then, notice the method of his preaching, verses 2 and 3. We, we see there are three verbs. He reasoned with them. He reasoned with them for three Sabbaths from the Scriptures, meaning that he expended energy. Again, there's no let go and let God in, biblical, uh, the, in the biblical faith. There's no God is so sovereign that he'll send missionaries where he wants. He doesn't need me. He expended energy, reasoning, debating, asking questions, answering questions, Engaging in arguments. He reasoned, explaining notice. He was able to take Old Testament texts, we'll come to that in just a bit, and explain that Jesus is Messiah, is the anointed one who had to suffer and rise. Do you think he knew his Bible pretty good? Now, I don't expect you, brothers and sisters, all to be trained rabbis or trained uh, theologians, but we need to know enough about the Word to be able to explain to people what we believe and why. What we believe and why. So he reasoned, explained, 
proving, notice, proving. In other words, he knew the Old Testament so well. He knew the prophecies of a coming Messiah, a Christ, an anointed one, so well that he could prove that those prophecies came to reality in our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you take a couple of Old Testament passages, brothers and sisters, and show how Jesus fulfilled them? I hope so. The Gospels do that. I'll give you a little, a little quick seminary class here. Read the Gospels and you'll see how Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecies. There you go. And you can write them down and there's a whole list of them and you can see them. I'll even give you a quick hint. Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. There's going to be a virgin born son whose name is God with us. Wink, wink. Who's that? Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew chapter number 1. So why did Paul reason? Why did Paul explain? Why did Paul prove that Jesus was the Messiah who had to die and be, uh, and, and be raised again if God is so sovereign? I mean, sometimes we say, and I know this because I say this, and I know you also say this because I've heard many of you say this too. It's not up to me to convince people of the gospel. It's not up to me to convince my friend of the gospel. Anyone want to amen that? It's true. It's true, brothers and sisters. That's a trick question. It's true. Amen to that. It's not up to me. I cannot in myself reason and prove and explain and utterly convince my my unsaved family members of the gospel. Why? It goes back to what we saw last Sunday with Lydia. Why did she need her heart opened again? The Holy Spirit needed to open her heart, but why? Because in in our sins we're dead. Outside of Christ we're dead. Outside of Christ we plug our ears up, we close our eyes up, We don't want to know, we don't want to hear, we don't want to listen, we don't want to follow. The natural man does not do the things in the law of God, indeed cannot do them, Romans chapter 8 says. Cannot. The heart's desperately desperately wicked above all things. Who can understand it? Can a leopard change its spots? Can an Ethiopian change his skin color? The prophet says. No. That's how we are in our natural state as sinners. So why did Paul reason, explain, and prove if God is so sovereign? On the one hand, we want to say that it's not up to us to convince people of the gospel. On the other hand, we need to act, we need to pray, we need to think through, we need to explain, we need to reason, we need to try to prove as best we can as if everything depended on us. Here's what Paul says. Later on, he writes two letters to the Thessalonians, and he says this in chapter number one, uh, uh, first Thessalonians, excuse me, chapter two, one Thessalonians chapter two uh, at verse number seven. He says, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear 
to us. And so there's this language of love and even motherly love and, and care and gentleness and concern for them to share the good news, to share their lives with them. So on the one hand, Paul describes that it's up to us that we wanted to share and we gave ourselves to you because we, you became desirous of uh, 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 towards us and we to you and you become dear to us. But then he says this as well. In a little bit of a different vein, he says in, in Second, Thess, uh, Second Corinthians, sorry, Second Corinthians chapter five, at verse fourteen, he says, "For the love of Christ controls us or compels us, because we have concluded this that one has died for all, therefore all have died." And then again at verse number twenty, he says, "Therefore we are his ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us." We implore you, this is very strong language, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Is the Holy Spirit sovereign to lead us and to guide us to people when he wants, where he wants, how he wants, and so forth? Absolutely. And when he does, we need to be compelled to do everything within our power to speak the word of the Lord to them and leave the Lord uh, the results to the Lord. Leave to God the results. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said it like this. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay and not madly to destroy themselves. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. We need to do all that is within us to compel and to bring people to hear the gospel, to know the gospel, to convince them, to prove to them, to explain to them, to reason with them, on the basis of what the Word of God says in Holy Scripture. Depend upon the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters. Depend upon the Holy Spirit. Notice then the content of Paul's preaching. The content of his preaching, again, verse number 3. As he is reasoning and explaining and proving from the Scriptures, he was doing so that it was necessary for the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, to suffer and rise from the dead. I guess the devil doesn't want us to hear the gospel today. Well, devil, you're going to hear it. It's necessary. Here's what he was saying. So what was he he saying for three straight Sabbath days, three straight weeks in the synagogue? What was he reasoning, explaining, and proving from Scripture with so much uh, compulsion that it was necessary for the Messiah, the anointed one, to suffer and to rise from the dead? To suffer. To suffer. Why? Why did the Messiah need to suffer? What does the Bible say about that? Why did the Messiah need to suffer? Because we're sinners. Because we're sinners. And we stand before a righteous God. And God must punish sin as a righteous God. The Messiah needed to come in to suffer. All the way from the beginning when Abel was murdered by his brother and his blood was crying out. His blood was crying out for vengeance. 
for justice, for righteousness. All the way from back in Genesis chapter 49, where that Messiah of Judah, that he would bind his donkey to a vine, and his clothes would be bathed in the sacrificial blood of that donkey. All the way back in Leviticus, the laws and the sacrifices, all the kinds of sacrifices. You read Leviticus 1 through 7. There are all kinds of sacrifices, five kinds of different sorts, of different kinds for different kinds of sin, all to show us that our sins must be paid for. There must be some punishment upon someone else. In Isaiah 52 and 53, for example, the great suffering servant prophecy. That there was one who was going to come, who was going to suffer on behalf of others. It was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise, we read, to rise. Why did he need to rise? So he paid for our, if the Messiah was to come and to pay for sin and to pay the, the penalty of sin, why did he need to rise? So we could rise too, yes. But why did he need to arrive? Wasn't his death sufficient? Denny, you laid hands on the car and it stopped? Yes. Is that what it was? <laughs> it always takes a former Pentecostal to take care of these things. I was praying in my head, but uh, yeah, thank you. Why did, why did the Messiah need also to rise? So if he died... If he died for sin and for sinners like you and me, and if that pays the penalty of our sins, why rise? Why rise? To overcome death, absolutely. To prove his power, yes. But it also, to fulfill scripture, all these things are amen to. But here, here's what I'm getting at is that he had to rise to, to demonstrate that the payment he made was actually accepted. Because you and I could say until the end of the universe to people around us that Jesus died for our sins. He died for your sins, brother. He died for your sins, sister. Just believe in his death and and you'll be forgiven too. But how do we know that? How did he prove that? How did he show that what he offered to the the Father and the throne of heaven itself was acceptable to God? Because he was raised up. He was given life. And the tomb was emptied. To show us that God accepted that sacrifice and to show that sins have been paid for. He demonstrated that from Scripture for three consecutive weeks. Genesis 22, Abraham takes his son Isaac to sacrifice him, to offer him, because God said so. And why was he going to go go through with it? The knife was in the air just about to sacrifice his very own son before the angel said, Abraham, Abraham. How did he... Why was he going to go through with it? Because he knew. He knew that God had promised that through Isaac, the line of promise was going to come. So that if God said, you must sacrifice that son, that must have meant that God was also going to raise him back up. To keep that line going. God said it and he believed it. He proved this from Psalm chapter number 2, for example, which the apostles have already mentioned to us. We saw this in chapter 13. Psalm 2, where the psalmist speaks of the Lord, uh, the Lord speaks to his Messiah, today I have begotten thee, speaking of his resurrection. He proved it from Psalm 16 that the Holy One would not see corruption. He would not abandon the Messiah, the anointed one, to the grave, but he would be raised up. 
And all throughout the Old Testament, you might read this phrase from time to time, a very interesting phrase, where the Lord speaks of a third day, of God doing something on the third day. For example, in the prophecy of, of Hosea, he speaks of the Israelites being crushed, but on the third day he revives his own people. And that language comes into the New Testament speaking of the resurrection. The resurrection, not of this, uh, not merely of the ethnic national people of the Old Testament, but the, the, the resurrection of their Savior, their Messiah. So he, he reasoned, he explained, he proved that it was necessary for the Christ, Messiah, to suffer and to rise again. And he says, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is this Messiah. Notice that. So he starts in the Old Testament, he shows the prophecies, death, resurrection. Oh, and by the way, this Jesus is that Messiah. Is that Messiah. He shows it in clear detail. Old Testament promises, New Testament Fulfillment. So as we see here, the source of his preaching is the scriptures, the Old Testament. The method is reasoning, he's explaining, he's proving. The content, of course, is Christ, who is the Messiah, who came to die and to be raised. And we see then finally the results of his preaching here in verse 4 to 15 in Thessalonica, as well as in Berea, the results of it. And you see it twice there. First of all, in Thessalonica in verse 4, some of them in the synagogue, the Jews, were persuaded as well as a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. And again, you see it there in verse number 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Uh, They went to the synagogue. Oh, excuse me, uh, uh, verse number 11. These Jews were more noble and so forth. Uh, And then again, verse 10, many of them believed. Many of them believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. So what were the results of his preaching? Their salvation. Many believed. Many believed. Did all believe? Not all. Some of the Jews in the synagogue were were persuaded. A whole bunch of devout Greeks. Many leading women in the city and so forth. But not all. In fact, we see that uh, the Jews, it says there, uh, most likely the, the leadership of them in the synagogue, they they, uh, they stirred up some wicked men in the streets. They formed a mob. They set the city in uproar, verse 5 and 6. They attacked Jason's house. They dragged him and some of the brothers before the city authorities. And Paul had to sneak out by night. He had to travel far away to Berea. Not all believed. Some believed, some didn't. And we've already seen the answer to why. Because on the the one hand, here's Paul, like I said, we we must do uh, as much as within us lies. We must act and pray and speak and share and invite to church as if everything depends on us. And here's Paul the Apostle, a trained rabbi who knew the Bible backwards and forwards, no doubt memorized much of it. Reasoning, explaining, and proving that all those promises were fulfilled in Jesus, and still many did not believe. Why? Well, we've already seen the answer to that question. On the outside, of course, we might say, well, because of their sinful hearts, their hard hearts, their closed hearts, they didn't believe. And that's true. But then we've also read Luke give us a glimpse behind the the veil, behind the eternal curtain, so to speak, in chapter 13 at verse 48, 
there's that verse that gives us an eternal perspective on why some believe and why some don't. When the Gentiles heard this, Paul's preaching, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life did what? Believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So we could say very simply, we'll let God sort it out. God knows those who are his. We believe in election. God chooses from all of eternity, and those whom he's appointed believed. It's up to God to give the results. I preached, Apollos watered, God gave the increase, Paul says. Some believed, some didn't. It wasn't because Paul's reasoning wasn't spot on, and it wasn't because those who believed, they, had, they were smarter, better listeners, Somehow morally more upright? No, it had nothing to do with that at all. The power of the Holy Spirit used his words to invade certain hearts, to break up stony ground, to plant that little seed, to water it, to give it life. And others didn't receive that. And those that didn't, we see again, there's this rabble, this mob, this persecution, And they accused the apostles of having turned the world upside down. The world, oikumene is the term that's used here. It speaks of the Roman Empire, the Pax Romana, uh, the civilized, ordered Roman world. These men are turning that civilized, ordered Roman world upside down. Because they're acting against the decrees of Caesar. Saying that there's another king. Jesus. We we know as good Romans, even as Jewish Romans, we know there's only one Lord. His name is Caesar. But these are saying there's another king. His name is Jesus. They're accusing him of sedition. Of wanting to put another king on the throne where Caesar sat. And so they were afraid for their own sake. They didn't want scrutiny coming down upon them that they were seditious because this preaching just happened to happen in their synagogue. And so they're turning the world upside down. They're acting against Caesar. They're proclaiming another king, Jesus. It's always interesting in the in the accusations. There's always a little bit of there's always truth there, isn't there? The irony, of course, is that they're claiming that the apostles are turning the world upside down. That's what the world says to us today. It says about us today that we're turning the world upside down. It's really the other way around, isn't it? The world is already upside down. It's utterly fallen into sin, and it's the gospel that begins to transform it. So that one day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and he makes all things new, the world will finally be turned right side up the way that God wanted it to be in the first place. But when you're living in an upside down world and you don't know any better, kind of like a fish, a fish doesn't know anything other than water until you pull the fish out and it can't breathe because it can only breathe by filtering water and getting the oxygen through the water, through its gills. 
In the same way, no one in the world knows that they're living in that water of sin, that they're living in an upside-down world, until you pull them out of it. Then their eyes are opened. Their minds begin to perceive. Their souls begin to realize. They're turning it upside down because they're proclaiming another king, Jesus. The world doesn't like that message. That's the message. Ever since the beginning of the gospel, the angel said that Jesus was a king, that he was going to come upon the throne of his father, David, uh, that he was going to reign, we were told there in Luke's gospel, chapter 1, and that his kingdom shall have no end. And when Jesus came to preach in the gospel stories, what's the first thing the gospel writers record for us summarizing his preaching? What was his message? You know what? In the gospel stories, when Jesus comes to preach, what's the first thing he always says? Repent. Why? For what? The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king himself is here. He's brought his kingdom. He's brought his kingdom. His first thing is his kingdom. Now, notice this. This shows us something about the the world in which we're living today, and it shows us about how we ought ought to uh, live in that world. The gospel is not a private thing. We cannot just as Christians hide in a little holy huddle thinking that the world's not going to notice us. We say something that is upsetting to the world's established order. There's a king other than whoever's on the throne. Being a Christian is not a private matter. Well, you can be a Christian as long as you, you know, those are your personal sentiments. Those are your personal beliefs, but those you can't ever let those spill out. Right? We hear that language a lot in our, in our, in our world, in our political world especially. The church is not a private institution. It's a public thing. The world's going to notice. That they, we want them to notice. We want them to hear. Now that's going, to, that's going to bring down upon us a lot of eyes and a lot of being ostracized and persecution, opposition, spiritual and otherwise. But we want the world to hear that there is a king. And yes, he's turning your world upside down, but in fact, he's turning it right side up. So the results were mixed some believed and many didn't there's persecution just notice as well there that uh, success in the ministry according to the uh, to the apostles includes people not believing persecution the church struggling it's not a bad thing it's just how it is so they're scurrying around about by night to berea They find their way there to a Jewish synagogue as well, and we read that, uh, again, some believe. We read there in verse number 11 that they received the word of God with all eagerness. They examined the scriptures, and they did so daily, notice. They did so daily to see if the things that Paul was saying were so. What things? That the Messiah had to die and to be raised, and that this Jesus is that Messiah. And so they went back to their houses after Sabbath service and they scroll, went to their scrolls. They unrolled their scrolls and they looked in them and they went to see if these things were true. And many believed, we read, many believed. Not a few Greek, of, Greek women of high standing as well as of men. One writer said that these Christians at Berea were a noble pattern for all succeeding Christians to imitate and follow. To know, again, to know the word, to meditate upon it, 
to, min- to marinate our lives in prayer, to minister to all in need. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed at Berea, they came agitating and stirring up the crowds, verse 13. That's what the world does. That's what the devil does. Does not want the gospel to spread, but yet here is that kingdom spreading. Here's that small pebble in Daniel's prophecy rolling down the hill and it cannot be stopped. The Spirit of God is still moving. And so in the, in the sum of it all is, again, the power of the Holy Spirit. The results all belong to Him. Paul reasons from the Spirit's words of Scripture. He reasons as a spirit-filled man, explaining, proving, and so forth. Uh, he does so uh, on the basis of what the Spirit has already said in the Old Testament, that the Messiah was going to suffer and be raised up, and he leaves the results to the Lord. Some believe, and churches are established in Thessalonica and Berea, but many don't. Many hate the gospel. But again, as Spurgeon said, if sinners will be damned, at least let them go and leap into hell over our bodies. The gospel turns this world upside down, turns it right side up. The world needs to hear that. And we need to trust that and be reliant upon the Spirit here in this place and in all those lives that we interact with every single day that the Lord would use us to bring the gospel and trust that he's going to sort it out. Some are going to believe and we're going to rejoice together and some are not and we're going to shed tears together. They don't. But the Lord is king. He's the one who reigns. And he's the one who rules. Let's go to him together in prayer. Lord, thank you. We bless you. We praise you today for the word and for your spirit to teach us on this Sunday how we are to rely upon you and all the means that you've given to us to pray, to read the word, to meditate upon it, and then to go to serve and to minister. Help us, we pray, Lord, to see success in our lives, in our ministry here together as a people of God, that together we would see your glory, your kingdom expand and grow, and to see your name exalted above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord. And all of God's people say, Amen.